Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson, and tonight our guest will be Dr. Gabor Mate, who uh, works in Vancouver with the Portland Hotel Society, as well as with Insight, and he is the author of In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, as well as several other books. Our second guest this evening will be Erica Dick, who is the chair of the History of Medicine at the University of Saskatchewan, and she studied the history of LSD treatment for addictions. Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little plug for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for anyone who wants to make a positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. And our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. Also, you can get more details at hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our first guest tonight is Dr. Gabor Mate, who has written In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, Close Encounters with Addiction, which I've been reading. It's a really excellent book. I recommend all of you to uh, buy this book and read this book. It's very good. Uh, Dr. Mate, Gabor, how are you doing tonight? Well, apart from the fact that I've just had my car towed away, so I had to retrieve it and pay for it, I'm pretty good. Well, sorry to hear about your car, but I'm glad that you're doing pretty well. I really appreciate your coming on the show tonight to be our guest. Sure. I'd like to, can you tell us a little bit about how you got involved in working with addiction and with insight in the Portland Hotel Society? Sure, um, but Ken, before I go on, can you tell me where about your audience is located? Like, how familiar are they with Vancouver and, uh, and um, most politics of, in Canada in general? Most of our audience is in the United States. Uh, we did do okay. a show with Insight earlier, so some of them might know some things about Insight, but assume that we don't know very much. Fair enough. So um, the downtown inside of Vancouver is generally acknowledged as North America's most concentrated area of drug use. In that, in a few square block radius, there are thousands of people who are addicted to uh, injectable substances, heroin, crystal meth, uh, cocaine, um, or, you know, inhaling the stuff or taking it in other ways. And the uh, Portland Hotel Society is a nonprofit which runs a number of uh, domiciles for people challenged by addiction and mental illness and HIV and other all the other complications of addiction, and so for ten years I was the medical director for the Portland Hotel Society, looking after the uh, medical needs of the patients that lived there in their facilities, or we just were sometimes came to our doors. Um, so I become involved in that because I'm a family physician and with an interest in addiction and interest in mental health issues. So the Portland was a natural place for me to come to when they opened their clinic uh, for a full-time doctor and I was that full-time doctor for 10 years and then for two years I worked with Insight which is the supervised injection site in Vancouver that you you just told me you already had a program about. Now uh, the Portland Hotel Society I mean a lot of residences for people they require abstinence from drugs to uh, as a condition but that's not true at Portland Hotel Society is it? No, the Portland uh, actually is dedicated to housing the unhousable, and so that if you make it um, prerequisite for people to give up the drugs before they get housing, that means that many people will be in the streets, as of course many people are. So the Portland is designed as a facility where people actually use their drugs, and we, well, we know that they do, and we can't stop them using their drugs. The only question is, do they deserve housing? Do they not deserve housing? Do they deserve medical care? Do they not deserve medical care? And so the Portland tries to look after the needs of these people, um, hoping to to steer them towards rehabilitation and eventual abstinence, but not making that a condition of housing. Do you find that housing people helps to reduce drug-related harms? Well, housing helps people live healthier lives, period. Mm-hmm. And uh, that that's, that's enough for me. Now, other than that, of course... When people are stable, when they're less stressed, when they're better housed, they tend to use less, and um, they're they're certainly more open to treatment. So, 
there's no loss, the only benefit. Yeah, I think nobody 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 uses more because they have better housing. Put it that mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. The other way around. Well, I think it should be obvious to everyone that it's a good idea to house people regardless of whether they're using drugs or not. It's just a shame that there aren't more programs like this around the world and especially in the United States and in Canada too. I mean, it seems like a very great need. The attitude towards drug users in both countries, I'm talking about the official governmental attitude, is very much that of uh, uh, a punitive approach so that uh, mm-hmm. people people are actually um, ostracized and um, and um, punished for for being uh, drug dependent individuals yeah it's very stigmatized um i've I've made this analogy sometimes before, but uh, sometimes it seems like uh, uh our governments are treating drug users in ways that are similar to the ways that Nazis treated Jews and I well I know that's part of your history from Europe but do you see any similarities there I'm not sure how helpful it is to push those kind of analogies too far you know uh the uh in the eyes of the Nazi there's nothing a Jew could stop could do to to stop being a Jew you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. whereas at least or at least in the eyes of the governments here, if people stop doing drugs, they'd be okay. So it's not the same kind of deep-seated uh, 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 hatred. Mm-hmm. But but if you want to look for similarities, there are some in that um, people are very prejudiced. They don't look at what addicts are all about. They don't care to know. They just don't like them. And mm-hmm. certainly they're treated... I would say that the attitude of the uh, towards drug addicts is more like the attitude of the Nazis towards political prisoners, mm-hmm. not so much Jews, which is an extreme example, but mm-hmm. towards political prisoners, you know, who 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 uh, opposed the Nazi system or somehow ran afoul of them, and and then they would lose all their rights and they'd be put into concentration camps or or jails and they were going to be treated very badly, and. Um, it's it's a punitive approach. Again, these analogies, historical analogies, uh, don't, to my mind, speak very directly to the situation. But in terms of harsh treatment, in terms of ostracization, in terms of uh, severe punishments, um, there are similarities. Okay. I want to go on and talk about uh, some things I was reading in your book. You were talking about childhood trauma and its influence on addiction and that uh, tell us more about that well it's only a matter of um, both personal observation but also of um, totally uncontroversial and overwhelming research evidence that the major uh, underlying cause of drug addiction is childhood trauma and um Everybody in the downtown east side were traumatized as children, and large-scale studies in the U.S. have also shown that the greater the degree of childhood adversity, the greater the risk of, exponentially the greater the risk of addiction. So if a child suffers physical, sexual, or emotional abuse, if a parent dies, or if there's violence in the family, or if uh, there's a rancorous divorce, uh, or if a parent is addicted or jailed, um, any of these factors increase exponentially the risk of addiction. And most drug-addicted people have had several of these factors, not just one or two, but probably three or four or five. And the more there are, the more likely the addiction. And that's because um, addictions, in a fundamental way, are attempts to escape pain. And when people suffer that much pain, they often don't know what to do with it except to turn to drugs to to soothe their pain, number one. And number two, the brain itself and how it develops and which circuits will optimally uh, unfold and which do not depends very much on the environment. And when the environment is stressed and traumatizing, the brain itself is affected in such a way as to make the use of drugs very um, soothing and very comforting to people. So we're talking about both psychological and emotional uh, suffering of people that drives them to uh, use drugs as a way of um, escaping their uh, distress, and we're talking about the biological effect of trauma on the developing human brain that makes drug use 
very enticing to people. So, uh, do people who are traumatized as children, are, are they more easily stressed and more easily traumatized by future events when they're adults? Absolutely. The people that actually are tra- diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder because of something that happens in adulthood, when you actually look at their lives, something that happened first in their childhoods. And so that the PTSD is a result not just of the incident that happened in adulthood, for example, uh, something in a war, but actually childhood emotional uh, trauma in the first place. The one becomes the template for the other. And the, the person's physiological stress mechanisms are very much um, shaped and uh, and uh, modulated uh, and potentiated by what happens early in childhood, even in the mother's uterus during pregnancy. So that the more stress and trauma there's in the environment, even when you're in the uterus, the more likely you are to be stressed and traumatized later. And the less resilient you're going to be in responding to that trauma. Do genetics have any effect? How do genetics play into this? Genetics, genetics may provide some predispositions. For example, there, you know, there are certain monkeys that are more predisposed to be alcoholics because they have a gene that protects them from the sedative effects of alcohol. So they can drink more, in other words, mm-hmm. and enjoy it more without falling down and falling asleep. But, but the genes are not determinant because those monkeys that are brought up by the mothers, they don't have that gene active. Only monkeys that are separate from the mothers is that gene activated. In short, genes are turned on and off by the environment. So whatever genetic predispositions there may be in human beings as well, and that has been shown, by the way, in human beings to the same degree, whatever genetic predispositions may be uh, present there, they don't determine the long-term behavior of the adult. What they determine is what's more likely to happen if the circumstances are wrong. But it still depends on the circumstances. So contrary to the usually accepted medical perspective that addictions are genetic diseases, they're not. There might be genetic predispositions, but whether or not the addiction will appear in the person's life or not depends very much on their childhood experience. I saw you talked a little bit about Rat Park in your book. And by the way, Bruce Alexander will be a guest in a few weeks to talk a lot about Rat Park. But tell us some of the things about Rat Park. What is this experiment and what did it tell us? Well, the, the idea you see that drugs are highly addictive is based largely on animal experiments where you give um, caged rats or monkeys uh, infusion of cocaine or heroin or whatever, and these uh, animals will press levers uh, to give themselves more and more drugs, even to the point of exhaustion and death. And this seems to prove that drugs are addictive, and in which they are. And in which they are, of course, all you can do is to try and limit their supply. But what... The psychologist Bruce Alexander at Simon Fraser University very astutely thought was, is it that drugs are addictive? Or is it that when you cage animals, then you isolate them from their peers and you tie them up and you put intravenous into their arms, that you're stressing them so much that then they'll turn to drugs to soothe the stress? Which is a rather obvious thought, but like so many obvious thoughts in uh, in science, it's also a brilliant one. And if... Of course, it was true that these animals are not uh, innately driven to be addicted just because the drug is offered to them. So if you treat them well, they might not be addicted. That would knock the uh, basis out of a whole lot of social attitude of drug addiction. Well, that's exactly what Bruce showed, is that when animals were given a, a decent environment with good toys and social companionship and decent food, there's nothing you do to make them addicted. So that the that the dogs became addictive, not in general, but specifically to animals who were very stressed and, uh, and I'd say even tortured. So that, so that uh, the the power of addiction does not reside in the drug itself. Okay. And of what course, you, you know, mm-hmm. same thing, same is true with human beings. I mean, most people mm-hmm. who try most drugs never become addicted to them. That's that's very true. Which, is, which, uh, is not, which, which means that the drugs are not in themselves addictive. The addiction happens when you have an addictive, potentially addictive substance and a traumatized individual or a very stressed individual. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about the war on drugs? Well, in light of what I just said, um, it's obvious that 
the more you stress people, the more likely it is that they're going to use. Now, the war on drugs is stresses people. Mm-hmm. And so that the more you fight the war on drugs, the more addicts are going to stay addicts. Because you're going to, because 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 it's not a war on drugs. I mean, you can't make war on a, on a drug. You make war on human beings. And the people that are actually uh, facing the brunt of the so-called war on drugs are actually the frontline, uh, street-level addicts who might sell a few ounces here and there to support their own habits. And and uh, they're the ones who end up in jail for possession or you know trafficking and so on. The big guys hardly ever do. And so when you stress people and jail them and you hunt them and you haunt them, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? You're going to further entrench their addictions. Also, of course, if you recognize that the drugs in themselves are not addictive, then we have to really ask, well, what is it that makes people addicted? And then, instead of making war on people, you'd be trying to give people decent circumstances in which to live. And you'd be putting all that money and effort into decent child policies so that children are not abused, so that children are well-supported, so that young families are not overstressed. In other words, you prevent addiction by taking away people's reasons to be addicted. And uh, furthermore, of course, the war on drugs simply uh, triggers a lot of criminal behavior because, you know, when you make something illegal, then you're going to have to be a criminal in order to get that substance, like with Mm -hmm. alcohol during the prohibition. Mm -hmm. So all the crime around drugs, 90% of it has to do with the war on drugs and nothing to do with the nature of addiction itself. So think of all the crime that wouldn't be happening if we had a different policy towards drugs and think of all the jails that would be um could be turned into hospitals instead or or whatever you needed them to be and uh think of all the energy and money and and uh social resources that are poured into fighting a war that is uh been shown by uh any measure to be complete and utter failure or worse What do you think attracted you to uh, working with addiction science and working with drug addicts? Well, as a medical doctor, you want to make a difference, you know. So, that, so I mean, this is a population that is very ill and needs a lot of medical care, and uh, so it's interesting work. It's rewarding work. It's um, challenging work. It's uh, it's work that um, speaks to the very heart of what it means to be a physician. That's one thing. But another thing, I don't see myself as that different from my clients. I, you know, I, I don't have a drug addiction problem, never did. But I have addictive tendencies, and I can certainly recognize myself in their behaviors. I don't think addictions are are um, set different, you know. In other words, I think there are degrees of addiction, and there are different targets of addiction, and different substances that we people become addicted to, or different behaviors. But the fundamental process is very much the same. And I could recognize that in myself, so I could just resonate with their lives and their struggles. And um, thirdly, um, it's, a, it's a particular po- unique population to work with because, unlike most people in society, they're they're quite authentic. They're, they don't pretend to be other mm-hmm. than who they are. Mm-hmm. So there's a sense of reality that everybody who works with uh, these, this clientele notices, and, and we all want that sense of reality. And you talk to anybody who works in this field you'll hear the same thing. So that um, it's very rewarding, actually. Well, I know when I wanted to learn more about harm reduction, because, see, I wanted to apply harm reduction to alcohol. But the only way to get any training or to learn what harm reduction was or how it works that I could find was to volunteer at needle exchange. And, you know, as a person who'd never been around drugs, I was very frightened at first. I thought I was going to meet all these scary people, but, you know, when I volunteered there, uh, you know, they were not frightening people. Um, Lots of people, you would have no idea that they were using, you know, injection drugs, you know, and it totally changed my attitude, you know, volunteering there towards the people that use drugs, and, you know, they were no longer frightening. They're very sweet people for the most part, very interesting people, very sensitive people very often. And um, many people will tell you that it is a surprise to people, but really it's quite extraordinary to how um, deeply you can get to know human beings and how much you can like them, mm-hmm. despite their very, very difficult lives, and even some of the things that they've done. 
Mm-hmm. As far as harm reduction in alcohol is concerned, um, that's not something I'm all too familiar with. Um, but I know that the model has been applied to, to drinking, and, and I know there's even a book I know about it called The Harm Reduction Approach to, to Alcohol, I think. So it's an interesting question how you apply it to alcohol, but it, it, it's, it, you know, it, it goes contrary to the 12-step model, of course, and which is only to say not to make the 12 steps wrong. In fact, mm-hmm. I think they're very useful and necessary and helpful and even um, indispensable, but it's not for everybody. And so that you know, there's no one size fits all. There's no one size fits all when it comes to addiction. Yes, I know. Uh, Some time back, I sent you a copy of our alcohol harm reduction book. So I think you have a copy of it. Well, that's 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 the book. You know what? That's the book Ken, that I'm thinking about. I was just looking mm-hmm. at it yesterday, and I'd forgotten that was the connection with you. Yes, it is our connection, and uh, certainly, I mean abstinence programs, whether they're 12-step programs, there's also cognitive behavioral programs like smart recovery. Uh, quitting yeah. uh, quitting addiction is a great way to reduce the harm. It reduces the harm from the addiction. Yeah. I know. I mean, I was addicted to cigarettes and I quit cigarettes. I was addicted to television and I won't own a television anymore. Those were addictions that I yeah. found my best approach was to quit completely. Right. And so certainly, I mean, a, a, Absence is one aspect of harm reduction. It's one way to reduce harm. And certainly anyone in harm reduction, you know, recognizes that and says, yes, we're in favor of abstinence for the people that it works for, people who are successful with it. Yes, it's very good. But not everyone is successful with it or ready for it. So there are other things that we can do. There are clean needles. Well, well, that's that's right. That's the whole question. The question is, what do you do with people who are not ready to take the abstinence step? And many are not. So do you abandon them or do you provide them some support, some help? And uh, do, you help, do you work with them in an attempt to um, to move them forward um, if that's possible? So that's the only question. Uh, I'm not sure why harm reduction is so controversial in the eyes of so many people. I think people imagine somehow that you're supporting addictions or you're enabling them or you're coddling the addict. None of that is true. Nobody becomes an addict or stays an addict a second longer because of harm reduction. It's simply a measure that helps people cope with some of the worst uh, consequences of addiction. Uh, they would still be addicted. They just suffer a lot more, and they would impose more suffering on others mm-hmm. without the harm reduction approach. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we need to educate people more. That's part of the purpose of this show is to educate people what harm reduction is. It's not opposed to abstinence, but, you know, very often, the more harms that people suffer, the less likely they are to get out of their addiction. Right. That's true. Uh, the more people suffer, by and large, most the more people suffer, the more difficult it is for them to give up their addiction. Uh, now, some people, when they once they have experienced really terrible uh, consequences, they'll give it up. So for some, that's true. But for many others, the opposite is true. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. But there's always a turning point, of course, when people decide to stop something. Um, my uh, five-year-old adopted nephew said to me, I don't want you to die from smoking cigarettes, you know? So yeah. Said, okay, I'll yeah. stop. And, uh, and if that makes a difference to you, then uh, you'll stop, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, my brother said the same thing to our parents, you know, when he was small, and it worked. Mm-hmm. But it obviously doesn't work for everybody. No, it won't work for everyone, and some people might not have a turning point where they decide to stop drug use or other addictions, although it seems that most people eventually will, if given enough time, will decide to change their addiction. That's what I've uh, heard. Most people, I'm sorry, say that again? I've, I've heard that most people, for example, most heroin users will quit uh, eventually. Given enough time, most might, but that still leaves many others who won't. There are still others who won't, but and many um, and some will some will, some will die of overdoses or some will die of HIV before they give up their heroin addiction. And well, that's, that's the population, I, and that's the population I've been working with. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the whole thing. The longer you can keep them alive, the greater the chance that they will. You know, get to the point where they decide to stop. That's one thing. Well, just it's hum. It's just humane. You should help people to stay alive, stay healthy. That's just 
That's just a humanistic. Well, you would think that you 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 would think that would make more sense, but some politicians in this country actually think it's not good to resuscitate addicts if they overdose because if you resuscitate them, you're just teaching them it's okay to be addicted. This is actually their thinking. Oh, I know. Even some uh, even some federal police uh, people in Canada have said the same thing. That I'm not sure he says that it's a good idea to resuscitate people because what's the message? Well, I know there's, there's uh, someone in this country, there's an organization that wants to uh, pay addicts to be sterilized. You know, and it's just uh-huh. ridiculous. It's, uh, I mean, it's, it's just totally inhumane. I mean, it's, well, what's the thinking that this is a genetic problem, so if you sterilize people, they won't pass the genes on? That is absolutely the thinking that they are that they are talking about. Uh, well, it, it, it's complete scientific nonsense, of course, but, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know. I suppose if I was an addict and I've already had kids and didn't want any more, I'd take the money and get sterilized. Why not get a vasectomy and get paid for it? Well, you know, some some people are desperate for the next fix and they will do what they need to do to get the money. If that's the uh, way the money is available, they might yeah. do it. Yeah. But it's it won't do it. It won't do it. It won't do a thing to stop addiction, of course. No. But it's not genetic to start with. Um, do you have some? Do you have some other books out? We're, we're going to finish up this segment right now. Do you want to have some other books you want to tell us about? If people would like to check out my books, the, the best place to get the information is at my website, which is www and then dr doctor g a b o r m a t e gabor mate dot com. I've written four books. This one on addiction in the realm of hunger ghosts is the most recent one. Uh, other books have to do with attention deficit disorder, which I have myself, and which is a major risk factor for addiction, by the way. Uh, very often people who do stimulants are actually self-medicating their ADHD, because that's why you treat ADHD as a stimulant, Ritalin and Dextrine, by the way. Um, so ADD is, uh, the book in ADD is called Scattered, the American title is Scattered, the Canadian title is Scattered Minds. Mm-hmm. The, uh, I've written a book on parenting called Hold On To Your Kids with a psychologist friend of mine. And then I've written a book on the mind-body unity and the role of stress in illness and health. And that's called When the Body Says No. And uh, these books have all been published internationally, including in the U.S. And the information about them or articles about them, or you can read chapters online at the website that I just gave you. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Mate, for being our guest tonight. Uh, it's been my pleasure to speak with you, Ken. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to do a little blurb now for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free of charge lay-led support group for anyone who wants to make a positive change in their drinking, from reduced drinking to safer drinking to quitting altogether. And our book is How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available on Amazon. Or you can get more information if you go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. I'm going to bring on our next guest. Right now, our next guest is uh, Erica Dick from University of Saskatchewan. She is the chair of the history of medicine, and she has studied the history of LSD treatment. And I'm going to bring her on right now. Hello, Erica. Are you there? I'm here. Okay, Erica, it's nice to have you on the show tonight. Tell us a little bit about your research uh, with LSD treatment. Well, thank you for having me. Um, I've been studying this for about the past eight years or so, but uh, historical research on LSD experiments that were done in an attempt to curb addiction, mostly alcoholism. And um, just one second here. I see your paper that you your paper was studied in the social your paper was published in the Social History of Medicine called "Hitting Highs at Rock Bottom." LSD treatment for alcoholism, 1950 to 1970. Um, and I've read the paper, but I'm going to ask you some questions, you know, because our audience doesn't know anything about this. So, did they find any evidence that LSD therapy might be helpful? Yeah, well, when I first started studying it, I didn't even realize that LSD had ever been used in this capacity, and certainly not as a medical intervention in the 1950s. So, well before Timothy Leary had got his hands on it. And uh, what they thought was happening was um, 
was a combination of both biochemical effects on the brain, uh, but also, and perhaps more substantively, they felt that the experience that LSD created in the person, uh, the trip, if you will, um, gave people a kind of inner strength, or it gave them perspective, allowed them to see outside themselves, and from there could reconcile their addictive behavior, and again, this was mostly directed at alcoholism, so they could see outside of themselves and imagine how this was affecting their families, their communities, their jobs, their wives, whomever. And they felt then that this gave um, addicts the kind of willpower to overcome their addiction. So it wasn't strictly medicalized in the sense that we might think of some other kinds of medical interventions, abuse or aversion therapies. It was really trying to operate on an assumption that alcoholism was a disease of, of environment, of um, self-perception, uh, possibly of past abuses. It, it could encompass a whole range of, of uh, behaviors and, and perspectives that kind of made up the disease. They felt that it worked to a great degree. Um, they were later, the fellows that I studied were later criticized for the ways in which they had conducted the trials by not having uh, appropriate control groups. Because we have to remember, this is the 1950s when they were doing this, and standardized research trials were not really the order of the day until, well, the end of that decade. So at the time, they were studying it on a more ad hoc basis, mm-hmm. so trying mm-hmm. out on a few people rather than having a control group and a, and a placebo group and, and a standard group. But what they found was that quite a few people um, claimed that they did better. They found uh, certainly over 30% of people uh, who were tested in this way stopped drinking right away, and at, in two years' worth of follow-ups, they had never returned to drinking at all. Um, others, they found, didn't stop immediately, but over time, this experience, the profound experience that they had uh, while under LSD, continued to play out in their minds. Not, They weren't calling it a flashback at that point, but they certainly talked about how profound this uh, experience was, and it caused them to think about drinking over and over again. And within a few months, they stopped drinking. And others found that they had very very little to any effect. And I interviewed some of the men who had been treated this way about 40 years after their initial treatment. And uh, all of the ones that I talked to had remained um, alcohol-free. Now, it, it's likely that 40 years after the experiments, these were the ones that I could find because they had done well and had, were quite healthy. But uh, it was not a very scientific experiment, but uh, <laughs> but it was really striking to me, the, the stories that they had about their experiences. Now, uh, in your paper, you talked about there were studies that were done in Saskatchewan, and there were other studies that were done in Toronto, and they got different results, but there were differences mm. in the study. Can you tell us about the differences between these uh, two groups? Sure. One of the uh, research approaches that was developed in Saskatchewan, and, and interestingly, this is a, a research group that came up with the term psychedelic. Uh, they were very keen on studying LSD for a whole variety of reasons. They thought it might give insights into what schizophrenia was, was like or how one might experience schizophrenia, as well as what um, alcoholism with psychosis might be like. So it came from a different route, but they found that um, by studying LSD, by taking it themselves, these are the doctors and the researchers, um, they felt that they had generated a kind of empathy with their patients, or in this case, some of their research subjects. And so they really um, felt very, very strongly that you couldn't give someone a drug and simply expect, you know, like we might take uh, aspirin if we have a headache and we don't really think about what it's doing. We just assume that within an hour or so our headache will kind of subside, and we don't really concentrate on what it's doing to us. But in this case, they felt that both the doctors and the nurses and any attendants had to be very empathetic to what was going on while the person was experiencing this, including the fears that they might have as the drug was taking its shape and how long it took place. Um, So they wanted to sit with them closely. They wanted to make sure they were in a comfortable environment. And they never felt that it was the drug exclusively that had this effect. It was the whole experience for six to eight hours worth of uh, of the LSD experience, whereas the Toronto researchers wanted to isolate the effect of the drug itself. They wanted to find out whether or not it was, in fact, a chemical reaction that was taking place. And to do so, they felt that it was necessary then to isolate the subjects or isolate the patients. Um, several of them were, were 
strapped in the beds. Uh, they weren't. Uh, there were no attendants interacting with them during this time, and many of them, as you might imagine, had a terrible experience. Um, mm-hmm. Not only was the LSD experience a, a frightening or a bad trip, as, as it would later be called more colloquially, um, but they didn't enjoy this experiment at all. Whereas the other guys who were treated to food and chatter, and they looked at photographs, they listened to music, they had quite a good time. So you can imagine how later researchers would say, well, these aren't very controlled studies. But the point that the Saskatchewan researchers were trying to make was that it's partly about the experience itself. It's not just a quick-fix biochemical reaction. It's about a whole host of um, environmental and more subtle biochemical reactions at the same time and the, and the interaction of these two. So there was quite a difference. <laughs> yeah, you might say that uh, the people in Saskatchewan were concerned about giving them a good trip, but many of the people uh, in the, under the Toronto conditions, perhaps most, had a bad trip. It seems that way, and it's hard to get really, really strong evidence on that because when I, I went through the patient files in the 1950s in Saskatchewan and several people claimed that they would say things that I might categorize or you might or anyone reading these you know, 60 years later might say, well, that sounds like a bad trip. Uh, there's one in particular that I'm reminded of that the, the patient, because they always wrote, um, they were encouraged to write down their own ideas about what had happened the day afterwards. And so in his own handwriting, he says that you know, he, he imagined that he was being eaten by worms. He was mm-hmm. having a terrible time. It was very frightening. And yet the overall experience, that of coming into the hospital, meeting with the doctors, and talking with them and following up with some psychotherapy about what had happened in the trip and what does this help him to see or understand about his addiction, the general or sort of overall long-term perspective was much more positive, even if the individual trip or LSD reaction was uh, was rather negative. So they really emphasized the need to to broaden this out. That and, and as we know, I mean there there are very few quick fix solutions to most things, but in, in particular, I think in addiction research, and I think that mm-hmm. was part of what they were trying to emphasize here. Mm-hmm. Well, when I was looking through some of this research, I saw one of the later studies in Saskatchewan was by uh, Jensen, I think, and it did have a control group, and it did uh, achieve statistical significance that the LSD group did better. So it did seem like it was mm-hmm. getting quite promising. Yeah, what, Sven Jensen had the the highest rate of, of um, success, I suppose, in, in terms of the published result. Um, I think there was one other study that was published from British Columbia where they claimed over 90% success rates. And Sven Jensen was claiming, I can't remember now, you may have it in front of you, um, that he used three different groups. And I believe he had over 60% success with the group that was treated with LSD. And later on when uh, other researchers began to look seriously at this and began to criticize uh, the, the ways in which they had set up the controls, they felt that what had happened in the Jensen group was that he had carefully selected people who he felt would be better suited to this kind of treatment. He, of course, um, rejected those kinds of criticisms, but it ended up being a bit of a moot point because as those research questions were thrown into uh, into this sort of critical context, this, this took place in the mid-1960s, at which point RCMP officers or police officers in both the U.S. and in Canada and legislators were much more concerned about curbing the use of this drug as a as a recreational substance, and it didn't matter what was going on in the medical world because it seemed that these other concerns overwhelmed any medical successes that were taking place in the clinic. Yes, um, well, I remember uh, being around in that era, and uh, the scare the scare stories about LSD were just unbelievable. I mean. I was a child. I mean, I remember watching Dragnet 1968, and they're talking about the people gouging their eyes out when they're on LSD, and they're jumping out of windows, and the babies are born with uh, no ears and holes in their head, uh, which, I mean, we know it's all propaganda now because, you know, all these things were refuted. or Most of them, I mean, largely this was all refuted as, you know, false, but we had a terrible you know, scare, well, this was the beginning of the war on drugs. This is what uh, brought about Nixon's Absolutely. war on drugs. Yeah. And I, 
I was terrified when I was a, I was a small child at that time. I was about ten years old. Terrified mm-hmm. of these things, you know. The ad campaign that came out uh, against LSD, and it wasn't just LSD. I mean, this was, you know, heroin and speed and and a number of drugs that kind of get lumped into that war on drugs that begins really at the height of the anti-Vietnam War crisis as well. So there's a, there's all this social activism, and at the same time there's a kind of, in my opinion at least, a rather conservative backlash that's trying to clamp down and I think to um, create some factions within uh, these social movements that were taking place at the same time. But I think part of what was going on too is that there were uh, a number of, of bad reactions and people being hospitalized or people behaving in very erratic ways, um, in, in ways that were poorly understood both by medical community as well as a legal or, or police community. And it did, it did genuinely and legitimately scare a lot of people. And I think part of the research that I did on this suggested that in the police reports as well as in some of the medical reports from attending physicians who, who would have, you know, someone would come into the emergency room, they often didn't know, uh, no one seemed to know exactly what substances uh, people were consuming at that time. Mm-hmm. I don't mean mm-hmm. in the 1960s generically. I mean in these acute moments where people come into the emergency mm-hmm. room, they either don't want to say what they've taken or they simply don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the arguments that some of the medical researchers put forward was that what we should do is actually um, regulate LSD without, in their case, LSD, or regulate drugs, not necessarily to criminalize them, but we'd actually have a much better handle on what people are taking because you wouldn't um, you wouldn't contribute to the stigma of uh, criminality. And, and we'd be better informed about how to treat, whether it's an overdose or a bad trip or, uh, or a cocktail of drugs, whereas they felt that uh, um, it was rather ignorant to move forward and just say everything is illegal because they felt people would hide those activities, they would engage in more risky behavior, um, and, and you might buy things, but you actually don't know what the, uh, the core substances are. There was a study done in California, I believe it was 1962, and uh, things being sold as LSD, they found a whole host of hundreds of different kinds of substances that were being sold as LSD, and none of them that, that they found were pure Sandoz-produced LSD. And so even if someone took something they believed to be a particular substance, if they went into the hospital and said, I, you know, I've taken this, it may not be the actual substance they'd taken. And it created this whole um, sort of, I guess, cloud of ignorance in terms of both dealing with uh, drug use and abuse, um, but also in trying to get a handle on, on how to make sure that people have safe access to things if they're going to take them anyway. You might figure my perspective on this. <laughs> well, um, this just make me think of something else. Um, you know, with the use of intoxicants, there are often social rituals that go with them, and when a society has an intoxicant with it for a long period of time, you know, they develop safer ways to use it. I'm thinking about, you know, distilled alcohol, uh, hard liquor, which was uh, in, in, in Europe for quite a while, and people developed some social uses, but when it was uh, suddenly unleashed uh, in, in the Americas with a population that had never tried it before, they had major reactions. It caused major social havoc because it was not, it was, they didn't have social rituals to deal with uh, drinking hard liquor. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you see the same thing with LSD. Um, some groups had social rituals about having a, having a leader, having a, a guru, I think they called it, to guide you yeah. through the good trip and, you know, to watch over you as opposed to people who would just take it at random, you know, in any circumstance. And that would also cause much more social disruption in that. Um, mm. Well, it's interesting because I absolutely agree. I think that um, the rituals built in, built around these, uh, the all sorts of different drug-taking behaviors. I mean, uh, one of the things I've been looking at peyote use among the um, American Indian movement and, and some of the Canadian Indian movement as well. And there are a whole series of rituals built in that it sort of runs counter to what we might think um, on a superficial level about uh, 
sobriety, that they felt that peyote use would actually work as a, a bit of a prophylactic against alcohol within mm. the Aboriginal communities, that is, which I found really fascinating. It kind of is kind of similar to the way the LSD researchers uh, felt about LSD. But one of the things that really struck me is that the medical researchers argued that LSD treatment for alcoholism should only be used once. Uh, so any individual who might be identified as potentially benefiting from this therapy would have that opportunity once. They did not feel that this was a drug that should be taken in a re- repetitively or that should be used you know, every month or so to make sure you, you, you stay off the alcohol. It was, the idea was that you take it once and you have this experience that then you can revisit and you can think about and you can meditate on um, in an informal way, that is, and, and more through a psychotherapy. And that, I, I think in, in some ways, that was also one of the challenges that they had when when it came to patenting the drug and uh, determining a single use for that drug. It, it wasn't going to make a lot of money if, if you're going to suggest a, a treatment that you only use once. Mm-hmm. And, and that, you know, compared with some of the blockbuster pharmaceuticals that were beginning, uh, the, that were coming out on the market at the same time, where you would take these things for the rest of your life, um, it was a real economic or commercial challenge as well as the, the whole drug industry. So the, the rituals are quite different, I suppose, is my, is my point there. Well, you might, that might be an example of a ritual in itself. I mean, the idea of taking antidepressants for the rest of your life um, instead mm-hmm. of taking them for a short period and, you know, getting beyond them, that is actually a social ritual in itself. Absolutely. Yeah, but part of what they believed was that LSD would help you to um, develop your own independence. Um, you would be independent from all sorts of substances, you know, the alcohol, but you wouldn't develop a dependence on LSD. And it, it seems, at least in the medical literature, that uh, no one ever argued that LSD was addictive or that you would uh, necessarily develop some kind of... Um, um, tolerance, or, well, sorry, you'd get a tolerance to it, but that you wouldn't necessarily go through any withdrawals. You might miss the feelings, um, but they didn't have a kind of chemical dependence the way that a lot of other drugs do, certainly not the um, opiate-based drugs. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar at all with the uh, ibogaine therapy for addictions? Um, only only uh, very briefly from, from some of the things I've read recently, but uh, um I haven't I haven't been following the debate there that closely, <laughs> but I believe it operates on some of the same principles. Well, it's, we are. I'm hoping that we can do a show about that. I'm looking for some ibogaine researchers right now to book for a show. But let's go on. Um, I've read your article, but I haven't got a copy of your book yet. So, but tell me about your book. What's the title? It's called Psychedelic Psychiatry: LSD from Clinic to Campus. Um, and uh, it it follows uh, this group of researchers in Saskatchewan and follows their ideas about you know, how they came to Saskatchewan, of all places, to uh, develop this mecca for LSD experimentation and uh, what happened to them. So the sort of the rise and the fall of the LSD experiments as they generated a tremendous amount of hope, um, both within the medical community but also, of course, among uh, the patient community for people seeking um, seeking ways of curbing their addiction or seeking ways of resurrecting their lives in some cases, and then how that um, that medical hope, I guess, subsumed to some of these larger issues that I alluded to with the social, some of the uh, the bigger 1960s uses of LSD, and I think really succumbed to the abuses of LSD that were overwhelmed by a more uh, conservative drug regulation regime. <laughs> Now, I I seem to recall that there was something called a hypnodelic use. Can you tell me more about that? Sorry, I couldn't make up what you were saying. Hypnodelic. Uh, hypnotism with the psychedelics. Wasn't that used together? I, you know, I'm not that familiar with the with the term, but I can imagine the the concept. There, of course, once LSD was it was freely available from Sandoz Pharmaceutical. Uh, the Sandoz Pharmaceutical Company from 1943 on until 1962, and there were a whole number of researchers who were using it um, 
part of the reason I looked at the Saskatchewan ones is because they maintained their access to the drug for a little bit longer than some of the others, and they'd actually um, developed quite novel techniques that were being borrowed by other areas. But I'm guessing that that um, hypnodelic would be part of what... There were a cluster of researchers in the United States, I believe um, their focal point was in New York, who were really trying to bring together a, a kind of uh, psychoanalysis um, mm-hmm, a mm-hmm. form of hypnotism and a kind of psychotherapy all kind of woven into one aided uh, through the LSD experience. I, I suspect it's along those lines, but I have to admit I'm, I'm not familiar with the term. I just came across it, well, I was a couple weeks ago looking at some of these papers. Uh, there's a lot of the papers online at the Arrowhead site. Um, mm-hmm. Actually, so I, I don't most of these are available. The full text is available for most of these papers from the Toronto people, the Saskatchewan people, and other LSD researchers too. So I saw an awful lot of them available. Yeah, I I did a, a quick search through, and um, the LSD research really really took off. There was about 15 years, and it became a really incredibly studied drug. There were over a thousand publications in in, in a few years' time. Um, and Arrowhead has done a tremendous job of, of scanning and, and digitizing a lot of those records. So um, increasingly, you can get access to most of them. I think most of them are, um, are the English language ones, but there were the drug was being used in all sorts of different ways and by, by all sorts of different kinds of researchers. I remember coming across a number of animal studies that were using the drug. Um, I think one of my favorites was, was using it with flying fighting fish, of course, in very small doses to determine whether or not it had any effect on aggression mm-hmm. and their desire to fight. And then, of course, you might extrapolate such findings and uh, apply them to the human population as well. Um, but it's it's really incredible how studied this drug was for a short period of time and then where it went from there. Um, and, and like I said, I think Arrowhead is, is by far the best site uh, for obtaining some of the original documents and, and a lot of these papers. Now, was LSD used for treatment of uh, other psychiatric disorders besides addictions? I, I should be careful with that. It was certainly experimented in that context, but it was mm-hmm. never formally applied you know, or formally um, patented as a treatment or a cure or a therapy even. Uh, they, it only remained within an experimental phase ever within its, its first life. It may be resurrected someday, but within this period at least, it was never patented as a specific therapy. Um, but it certainly was tried as a, for a treatment for all sorts of things. Uh, depression, homosexuality, which of course was considered a disease until, mm-hmm. yeah, according to the psychiatric community, until 1978, I believe, um, mm-hmm. for addictions. And it, it operates on a similar principle that somehow this drug would unleash an experience in an individual that would help them understand their behavior. So if they were trying to, or if the, perhaps the researchers or psychotherapists were trying to encourage someone to stop being homosexual, uh, the idea would be that they would take this drug and it would help them to understand the folly of their ways. Um, that's a particular one we can pick on because that's changed quite a lot, but in the case of alcoholism or even depression um, or pathological uh, behaviors, they were able to use this drug as a way of kind of giving someone some perspective on their behavior. And many people described taking the drug and then seeing outside themselves or seeing beyond themselves. And it was that principle which they used to try to um, break that pathological behavior. So it, it has certainly been, been tried in, in a variety of ways. One misnomer, I think, is that it it was used to treat schizophrenia. And although that may have been a case in in one of these many, many studies that were done, uh, I really only read English, so I can't vouch for some of the ones that the studies conducted in other languages, but um, my sense of the English language materials, certainly of of those that I looked at, was that it wasn't used to treat schizophrenia, but was used to understand schizophrenia. So, for example, if uh, a psychiatrist, maybe and a psych nurse or a psychologist, they might be encouraged to take the drug in an effort to understand someone's behavior. 
but not to necessarily give it to someone who was diagnosed with schizophrenia in an effort to cure them, but more to generate that empathetic, uh, yeah, an empathetic relationship with them. Well, that's interesting also in uh, relation to the idea that the the early researchers, the first researchers that working with alcoholics were saying that maybe this will reproduce a delirium tremens and mm-hmm. maybe that will work. And then they completely flip-flopped on that and said, no, that's not what's working at all. It's, it's uh, the spiritual experience of the drug. It's very interesting with the... Um there were a number of different explanations for why LSD was working with a, an alcoholic population, and and you're absolutely right. There were a number of people, even even secretly, people working from um, from the perspective of Al- Alcoholics Anonymous, and suggesting that you know perhaps that I remember one psychologist I interviewed who who would use it in this way um, suggested that what he had difficulty doing was referring patients to alcoholics. Uh, Alcoholics Anonymous or AA because they would return to him saying oh those guys are just sitting around talking about God I don't want to do that you know that's not my mm-hmm. it's not my scene and he felt the psychologist Duncan Blue that is felt that perhaps LSD might help him whether he has a spiritual experience or just something that as Blue would put it you know knocks his socks off or shakes his sense of himself and his place in the world it might allow him to listen for the first time to people talking about God or a spiritual experience or, or anything that might be encapsulated in that step two of the um, 12-step program. And so it wasn't necessarily that um, that it took him there, but it might help to allow people to be more receptive to some of those ideas and some of those interventions. And it was interesting, they, they published their studies, or they reported their studies, rather, in the AA newsletters. And of course... It's a tricky situation because by taking LSD, you would compromise your sobriety. Um, and so it was difficult to endorse such a, a, a therapy, but there were certainly more informal referrals to, to try this for, for people who are having difficulty sticking with the program. And of course, that's, that's not recorded loudly, but, <laughs> but there was some anecdotal evidence to suggest that uh, AA was certainly uh, aware and somewhat complicit in some of these arrangements. Uh, oh, I did not realize that. You mean the, the AA Grapevine, their uh, magazine, uh, published mm. some of these experiences. It would be interesting uh, to look at their archive and see what's, what's there. I think that would be a fascinating study because uh, we know, for example, that uh, Bill W. Was, uh, was certainly aware of the experiences and he corresponded with the researchers in Saskatchewan and, uh, and asked, you know, they tried to understand how how closely an LSD experience might approximate that that feeling of hitting rock bottom. And for some people, they felt that delirium tremens, especially when it reaches the stage of, of a, a psychotic uh, reaction as well, there might be some, some very similar experiences that were experienced across the board here. Um, so it was partly that they were trying to explore whether or not this, this chemical trigger might kind of catapult you into that place uh, before you had to experience uh, delirium tremens more naturally or more organically, which might have other health consequences as well. Mm-hmm. You know, in Bill W.'s official biography from Alcoholics Anonymous, it's called Pass It On, he uh, relates quite a bit in detail about his experiences of taking LSD himself. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, after, well, this is the way it is in AA. After you're dead, you're not anonymous anymore, especially if you were right. successful. So uh, after he died, they published his uh, biography, and this was, you know, sources that he'd left behind himself. He'd left uh, behind quite a bit of information about his LSD use. Also, uh, this is also from Saskatchewan, um, the uh, idea that niacin would cure alcoholism, which came from Abram Hopper from the same group, although that's later been pretty much refuted that it's not effective, but. Or at least it's, yeah. I guess it's very much a question that it, it, it's effectiveness. Mm. Well, he's, Hopper, Hopper started with some of the LSD work, but he was really very interested in the niacin therapies and continued until his, uh, he, he died only a few years ago now, into his 90s he, he was, and still practicing 
um, he's very active, he's very actively promoted omega vitamin therapy for a whole variety of things, primarily for the mental illnesses, but niacin is a key component of that. And he felt that niacin would also curb addictive behaviors, especially alcoholism. And to be honest, I'm not, I didn't, don't, I don't quite follow the biochemistry behind it, but he had a very, uh, much more sophisticated explanation of it than I could possibly try to give here. Um, but he certainly felt that these megavitamin therapies were, were first developed and as an antidote to an allergy reaction. So if someone mm-hmm. was, uh, apparently having a, seemingly having a bad reaction, he would give them niacin as a way to curb that or stop in that. Um, and based on that, those sort of trials, he felt that perhaps then niacin might also project uh, and Well, I see that we are out of time now, so I want to thank you very much, Erica, for being our guest tonight and telling us about LSD. And everyone, please tune in next week for our next episode. Thank you. Thanks very much, Ken.